Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it's an annual list. No, we're not talking about Santa's nice or naughty list. It's Places in Peril, which may not be too good. We'll hear how the Georgia Trust for Historic Preservation determines the state's most endangered historic locations and sites. And this year they're including Ansley Park and the Chattahoochee Brick Company among them. So we'll talk about that. Plus, DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston talks about a new gun violence prevention unit and how they're also going to use technology. We'll have those conversations coming up in a moment. But first this, a federal judge in Georgia has temporarily blocked the Biden administration's COVID-19 national vaccine mandate for federal contractors. Judge Stan Baker of the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of Georgia issued a preliminary injunction against enforcing the requirement Tuesday. Now, Biden's mandate would have applied to millions of employees and federal contractors, which includes defense companies and airlines. It's the third of Biden's broad vaccine mandates affecting the private sector that have been put on hold by the courts. In other news, APS current superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring will remain in her position for another school year. That's at least through the 2023-2024 academic year. The Atlanta Board of Education approved the contract extension Monday night. Herring started as superintendent in July of 2020, right in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and has led the district's pandemic response. The district says it saw an all-time high graduation rate in 2021 under her watch. A note of disclosure, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. And expect to see more digital campaign ads for our everybody that wants to run to be the next governor of Georgia. Well, you can expect to see these ads throughout the holidays leading into 2022. Now, Governor Brian Kemp's ads started months ago. Fellow Republican and former Senator David Perdue's ads are also on social media and Democrat Stacey Abrams. Trump supporters and Kemp supporters and Georgia Republicans and Georgia voters know what my record is. Look, I like Brian. This isn't personal. It's simple. He has failed all of us and cannot win in November. My mission is to make certain that in 2022, we are talking about where we go, that we have real plans. Well, and that's just the beginning. Let's talk about the Republican Party and their pathway in 2022. Joining me now is Atlanta-based Republican strategist Julian Thompson, president of Main Street Network Strategies. That's a messaging and advocacy firm based here in Atlanta. She's also a longtime leader in the Republican Party and joins us again. Thanks for taking the time, Julian. Good to see you. Happy holidays. Thanks for having me. Let's begin here because I saw a headline from our good friend Greg Bluestein over the AJC that said, quote, Get ready for 2022, Georgia. It's going to be wild. Close quote. How much truth is in that? I I think that there's a lot of truth in that. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the announcement from former Senator Perdue was was the announcement heard around the world, um, at least heard around the country. And then when President Trump uh, stepped in with his endorsement, I think that... Um, it, it really caused a stir in Georgia politics. So it's it's looking to be a very contentious race. It's already heated up. You can see it all over social media and uh, it's gonna be the race to watch. Well, we're gonna talk more about that, but I do wanna get your thoughts, Julianne. How would you assess the overall state of the of Georgia's Republican party right now, especially because what appears will be this showdown on the Republican side between Governor Kemp and David Perdue. Is there folks, it's kind of like DC and Marvel. Are you team Marvel? Are you team DC? 
I'll leave it up to you to determine which one is Marvel and which one is DC. But is there are there some some factions right now? Folks are like, ah, who do I support? Where do I go? What do I do? Well, there's there's no doubt that people are divided over this um, already. Like I said, there's a lot of a lot of dissension on social media. People attacking each other. But this is nothing new in a contested Republican primary, and I'm sure in a contested Democratic primary as well. Uh, people fight during the primaries, and then they come together in the general election. I think the thing that has me most concerned is is the fact that the fighting could become so severe um, that we're focused on that instead of focusing on the real issues that are important to Georgians. And that's what the candidates need to focus on instead of fighting each other, which has been the focus so far. You're a strategist. So then what would be your suggestion to either camp? Because based on everything you just said, the bottom line is there is another X factor, which goes by the name of Donald Trump. So what is your strategy if you were talking to either campaign? Listen, the fact that Donald Trump will have an influence in this is something to contend with. Although, you know, and Governor Kemp has said, look, you know, he wants, he can't control what people say that some will say that's probably a good thing to do. But at the same time, you are running up, you are running against Purdue and who is backed by Donald Trump. Well, there's no doubt about that. And I think it was Insider Advantage that did a poll um, just yesterday. And when the question was asked, who do you support for governor? uh, If the election were held today, uh, Kemp was at 41%, and I think uh, Purdue was down at around 27%. And then when they asked the next question, how would you feel knowing that the former president, President uh, former President Donald Trump, endorsed David Purdue? Uh, what would your reaction be then? And and the race got a lot closer and a lot tighter as a result of, of that factor in the questioning uh, for that poll. So I think that the Trump factor is, de- it definitely does play a role in how people are going to vote, especially among the, uh, the Trump base of the Republican party. But there's also a huge amount of people, not just in the base of the Republican party, not just traditional Republican activists, uh, but there's, there's a large base in the business community that's very supportive of Governor Kemp, and mm-hmm. I don't see that shifting. So um, at, at the current time, it's, it's very difficult to handicap this race, mm-hmm. but, you know, it, it's definitely going to be a contentious one. Let me ask you, Julianne, what is the core difference between the Trump base and the, I guess, Republican non-Trump base? Is it those that simply believe that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from him, as he keeps saying, which we know that is not true. And that is just a lie. Let's be really clear about that. Is that the main difference here? That folks refuse to, or they're, they're, they're buying into what he is saying about the presidential election and blaming Governor Kemp and Secretary Brad Raffensperger. And Purdue is doing the same thing. Well, I think that that's part of it. But I think that the Trump base of the Republican Party right now, and it's not necessarily the Trump base of the Republican Party as much as it is the Trump base, period, because a lot of the Trump base is crossover Democrat uh, vote, uh, blue collar votes for Donald Trump that that really connected with him. And those are the people um, that are deciding some of these Republican elections. And I would say that the difference is it's a personality difference. It's not a policy difference. It's not an issue difference. It's a personality difference. Is Donald Trump going to endorse this candidate? And that alone is enough for some people. Um, They're not concerned necessarily about the policies, about whether or not uh, Governor Kemp has been arguably the most conservative governor that we've ever had. Um, There are people that are more concerned about whether or not the personality, the person Donald Trump has endorsed one candidate versus the actual policies and record. How do you see Vernon Jones being a factor in terms of taking votes from either one of those other, Kemp or Purdue, uh, in the primary? Is he a factor here? He's definitely a factor, but he's more of a factor for Purdue than he is for Kemp. Really? Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think that... Um, I think that the Purdue camp underestimated what the reaction would be um, introduced or um, coming out and saying that he was not only running, but was running 
uh, with Trump's endorsement. I've heard from a countless amount. I've gotten texts, I've gotten calls, I've gotten emails from a lot of people that are supporters of Vernon Jones. And he does, he does pull a lot of the conservative base. He does pull a lot of the evangelicals and he pulls a lot of the Trump Republicans. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people are telling me that they feel betrayed. They feel betrayed because they feel that Vernon Jones was a supporter of President Trump through thick and thin. He was a Democrat that crossed over and supported President Trump. And they felt like that the pres- the former president should have endorsed him or at least stayed out of the primary mm-hmm. as long as there were two uh Trump Republicans running um, there. So I think that it does have a factor. Um, I don't know whether Vernon Jones is in this long term. He certainly says, I think he made this statement today or yesterday that he's staying in this race, that he's not going anywhere. But I think that it is going to make a difference because Mm -hmm. the people that I have talked to that support Jones do not plan to go anywhere. You talked about the risk involved if you're still going to spread misinformation regarding the 2020 presidential election outcome. You wanted the candidates to focus on those GOP base issues that they have to tackle. What are they, particularly for here in Georgia? Well, I mean, of course, first and foremost, it's the economy and, you know, inflation. I think that that's that's not just in Georgia. That's around the country. Mm-hmm. I think that as far as uh, Governor Kemp is concerned, he needs to run on his record. He needs to run on the fact that he kept the economy open through COVID, um, what his COVID responses were. Um, he needs to talk about jobs. He needs to talk about education and health care. Those are all things that are very important to people across the board, not just Republicans, but mm-hmm. speaking specifically about a lot of Republicans that we need to win back that we lost in 2020, um, especially women voters. Obviously, we're never going to get all women voters, but we need a certain per- percentage of women voters to come back to the GOP. And you do that by offering solutions to problems that are important to them. It's not just, it's not enough to just blame Biden or just blame the Democrats for current situations that we're in. That in and of itself, I do believe, is going to carry us to victory and winning back Congress in 2022. However, it's not going to be enough to win the governor's mansion if we're not offering solutions to those problems. Are these, let's break down then when you talk about the GOP, the women voters, are these suburban, white white suburban women, more diverse, trying to get more folks, or I guess mobilize your base, but get, getting folks who, from wherever who maybe are undecided. Who are you talking about here when you say specifically with the women voters? Rural, I'm, talk- urban? I'm talking about the the Republican Party and the candidates and the campaigns reaching out and talking about and tackling uh, issues that are important to to all women voters, to a, to a diverse group of women voters all across the political spectrum. Because, you know, when we're talking about issues like the economy, when we're talking about inflation, when we're talking about jobs, education, healthcare, those are issues that are important to women across the board. And I think Republicans, like I said, it's not enough to do the blame game. Mm-hmm. They've got to offer solutions to those issues. And the governor and Governor Kemp has to run on his solid record as a conservative. And David Perdue, when he's talking about those issues, needs to be very forthcoming about what Kemp did wrong, but what he is going to do to bring solutions to those issues. And right now, everyone's focused on fighting each other. Before we let you go, I do want to get your thoughts on this because, look, 2022 is much more also than the governor's race. Okay, it's midterms as well. How do you see this shaping up not only to a roadmap to 2024, that presidential race, but look, again, once again, the the control of the Senate looks like it could come down to what happens here in Georgia. What's the strategy here for Republicans, you think? 
Well, I think that, um, you know, we have some some great candidates in the primary. I'm not going to say, you know, that any one of those candidates is is more uh, more qualified than the other. They're they're all definitely wonderful candidates and I'm very proud of all of them. However, as far as strength and name recognition is concerned, there's no doubt about the fact that Herschel Walker is way up there and um, and I think he's going to do extremely well. Why? Why do you think Herschel's going to do well? (laughs) I think he's going to do well I, because people connect with him. He not only he not only is um, he's not only right on the issues as far as Republicans are concerned, but he has that certain charisma and that connection um, that people are just drawn to him. And so I, I think it's important. And I think that the fact that he is, you know, that he's a former athlete, that he was an athletic star, I think it does matter um, as far as his name recognition is concerned. But do you think he needs to be out there more than on issues? Because someone might argue, well, what issues? Because someone I said, that, I ain't heard Herschel say nothing. Sure. It's the end of 2021 right now, and he's in fundraising mode. So I'm okay. sure that he's going to be out there on the issues later. But but as far as 22 is concerned, I do think that Republicans will take back Congress. And I think that that sets the roadmap to 2024. However, um, once we get past 22, we we sincerely have to get back to talking about those issues mm-hmm. that are important to people and what our solutions are going to be. And we cannot continue to hang on to the 2020 election. Finally, is there anyone you're watching within the GOP that might come out of the pack here for 2024? You could, you could, I, you could be seen as an, an expert. This is it right now. This is your chance to do it. I, I think that the top four are number one, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and Christy Noem. That's an interesting list. And you want to pick one out of that? <laughs> Pardon? You want to pick one out of that group? I, I think currently right now, as it stands, Ron DeSantis is definitely in the number one spot. Really? Yes. We got to come back and talk about that with you and Fred. I would love to. <laughs> Atlanta-based Republican strategist Julianne Thompson, president of Main Street Network Strategies, a messaging and advocacy firm based here in Atlanta, longtime leader in the Republican Party. Good to have you back. Good conversation. Thank you so much. We'll bring you all back. Uh, 2022 should be, as Greg Bluestein put it, wild. Thank you for having me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The following have made a list. Ansley Park here in Atlanta. Chattahoochee Brick Company, also here in Atlanta. Georgia Fairgrounds in Merriweather County. Georgia B. Williams Nursing Home in Mitchell County. Good Shepherd Episcopal School in Glenn County. Imperial Hotel in Thomas County. Red Hill Cemetery in Milledgeville, Baldwin County. Red Oak Creek Covered Bridge in Merriweather Merriweather County again, and Thicket Ruins in McIntosh County, as well as the West Broad Street School in Clark County. Those sites and dwellings are on Georgia's Trust annual Places and Peril list. If you're wondering what that's all about, well, according to the organization, this list seeks to, quote, identify and preserve historic sites threatened by demolition, neglect, lack of maintenance, inappropriate development, or insensitive public policy, close quote. Let's talk more about these two Atlanta sites. Joining me now is Mark McDonald, president and CEO of the Georgia Trust for Historic Preservation. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good to have you. Nice to be with you, Rose. Before we get into the two Atlanta sites that made the list, uh, let's take our listeners through the criteria and how you all choose your annual places and peril 
list each year? What's that process like? Well, Rose, the, the most important thing is this is a list that we compile from input from the community. So mm-hmm. we put out a request for nominations to places in peril uh, in the springtime. And uh, we receive uh, usually about 30 from constituents all across the state. And then we have a committee of the Georgia Trust Board who uh, examines the list. And our criteria is they have to actually be endangered. There has to be a real threat to them. They have to be historic in nature. They can't just be a, a an ordinary building. It has to be something that's eligible for the National Register. So in other words, historic. your favorite ice cream shop that's been around for 50 years may not necessarily make the list just because that's where that's your, right. your grandparents that's, went and all that. That's right. What? Uh, or, or, or it can't just be on the list because you want to try to raise money for it. Mm-hmm. It has to have a threat to it. And uh, it also has to be geographically distributed. We want to make sure we're covering the entire state of Georgia, not just being focused on one geographical area. Mark, does the site or the dwelling or the location, should they already have some sort of either local designation or, or how does it, does that help in, in making the Yes, list? it would help. It, it's not required, but it would help to have a local designation. Uh, and the other thing, Rose, is that it has to have a, a viable group of people that we can work with in that community that that site is located so that it has a viable chance of success. We don't want any totally lost causes on the list. We want to focus our list on things we can really make a difference on. When you say lost causes, give an example. What listener says, well, I can imagine if they get this designation, they can then. It will help bring more attention, possibly maybe raise money or whatever to help prevent it from demolition or whatever. So what would be a lost cause? Well, an obvious lost cause, and we get these often, is a building that is in such bad structural condition that it really cannot be saved Mm -hmm. because it is way beyond saving structurally and the cost of repairing it would be many, many times uh, more than the property would ever be worth when it was restored. Do you all have a chance? Infeasibility would be economic infeasibility. Gotcha. Now, Mark, do you all have a chance to try to visit these sites or you have, you have a board? Would it? Absolutely. So it would benefit you all to visit the sites and the locations and you have your little assessment sheet and that's how you determine? Precisely. We we visit each site uh, and look at them. And we have volunteers who do that, which is amazing. We have people who, who are volunteers for our organization who will travel the entire state and look at these sites uh, with us, which is really amazing. How often do you have a site that or a location or dwelling that keeps coming back up that maybe the first time they weren't? you know, given that status, but then they came back. It's happened a half dozen times since uh, I've worked for the trust, which is 14 years. As a matter of fact, uh, Fountain Hall, which is now in the process of being saved up at Morris Brown, Morris Brown. Mm-hmm. has been on the list twice. And uh, we were concerned about it about seven or eight years ago. We listed it. Um, there was a burst of energy and then nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And then it was listed again. And then, of course, we're, we're on the road to saving that site now. So let's, it does happen. Let's turn to the first of the two Atlanta sites that you that made this list. Of course, the first is Ansley Park. Now, I can imagine when I said this name and, and some people listening said, Ansley Park, how they, how they in peril? What's the issue here? Because Ansley Park looked fine to some people. Yeah, it does look fine. The, the problem is, is that it is a, a neighborhood that is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Mm-hmm. And... The National Register requires that over 50% of the buildings in the district be historic in nature, which means over 50 years of age mm-hmm. and have architectural integrity. Well, Ansley Park is about to reach the point where it has less than 50% of its historic buildings because there have been so many buildings torn down to make way for uh, newer buildings, larger structures, uh, jammed on small lots. And so it, it is losing its architectural integrity every day. And there not a month goes by that we don't lose another building in Ansley Park. So it is very on the cusp of losing that historic status. Mark, you make it sound like the bulldozers are right there at the uh, Colony Square and Peachtree and ready to come in and take out the homes of Ansley Park. Is that a little bit of a... They are. You're not exaggerating? Are. Some folks may say, come no. on, Mark. No, no exaggeration. So let me ask you this, because Ansley Park has been at the center of debate over zoning changes for more residents. Right. But you all have had a lot of huge 
mansions, I want to call them estates that have been built going back to early 2000s. Shouldn't y'all have started then? Or And, and are those buildings, do they fit the integrity of Ansley Park that you just told me about? Uh, no, they do not. Uh, and we have, we did start this earlier, about six or seven years ago, we listed the in-town historic neighborhoods of Atlanta, including Virginia Highlands, uh, Morningside, mm -hmm. other neighborhoods. But Ansley has risen to the top because of the acceleration of demolitions. And what's and so I want to be very clear for our listeners because we want to make sure we're understanding what you're saying. The the homes that are being demolished, they're being replaced by these bigger mansions, bigger homes, apartment complexes. Right. Yeah. I, yes, most, mostly single-family homes, ironically. Uh, this listing has nothing to do with the zoning controversies mm -hmm. uh, because that's really a perceived threat. It's a threat that people think is a threat to the neighborhood. We're dealing with an actual threat, something that is ongoing, that is happening now, and we're trying to do whatever we can. And, and we are working with the committee from Ansley Park. This is not, again, this is not a Georgia Trust listing. This is the one that was nominated by the Ansley Park Neighborhood Association. So, aren't you part uh, of the association? Yeah, pardon me. Aren't you part of the association? Uh, I, I am. I live in. I live in the neighborhood. I, personally, I am. And 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 Rhodes Hall, our headquarters, is right across the street from it. Now, Mark, can you understand if someone says, "Now wait a minute, Mark, did you fast track this being on the list?" That's not an accusation. I, That's a question. Fair question, I think. I absolutely did not. No, I. I let the committee do its work, and the board follows the committee's recommendation. I have a question from a listener who wants to know, have you all, have there been other Atlanta neighborhoods, because I want to get to the Chattahoochee Brick Company too, but listener wants to know, have other Atlanta neighborhoods faced similar situations, and were you all able to, I guess, help them out? And if so, which neighborhoods? You mentioned Virginia Highlands and some other areas, but the, give us an example. Was there another neighborhood that was in Yeah, the, 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 the answer to that question is yes, we have tried with other neighborhoods, and we have we have not met with very much success. Why is that? What's uh, the what's the problem you think there, Mark? I think the problem is uh, it's a problem of growth in the city, this economic development. Uh, wealthy people want bigger houses. Uh, In-town neighborhoods are more popular uh, than they were years ago because of their proximity to Midtown and what's going on in Midtown. Um, so you blaming people wealthy are, people? People are tired of commuting. So, <laughs> so far, wait, Mark, so. are you blaming wealthy people? Because I'll get a lot of emails. I'm gonna tell them to come directly to you. Well, but it, aren't I, there wealthy blaming, people already I'm in Ansley Park? Anyway. I'm, I'm just citing a uh, reality that's happening: is that smaller houses are being bought for their lot, and they're being torn down, and larger houses are going up. And I want to be clear: you're saying that this has nothing to do with proposed new zoning laws because I get a lot I want to be very fair get a lot of emails about this this issue not just in Ansley Cascade other neighborhoods and and listen when we talk about single family zoning and all that that's another segment but I want to give you all you as an organization an opportunity to clear that up because I get emails from people that say no this is very clear Ansley was clear that they started this historical preservation in an effort to res in response to the proposed new zoning laws is that true I, I do not can't speak to Ansley Park's motivation. I can speak to our process, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the with the zoning controversy. It's okay. We've been concerned about this long before that zoning controversy was even an issue. All right. If you're just joining me, I'm in conversation with Mark Donald, is President Mark McDonald, excuse me, President and CEO of the Georgia Trust for Historic Preservation, and we're talking about the places in Pearl List. And and Mark, I definitely know we want to get to the side of the chat. Chattahoochee Brick Company, which has been vacant for years. You know the history of that. I don't have to tell you that. Where are we now? When you all are recognizing its historical significance now, but then the city has plans of creating, I think, green space and a memorial uh, because of the history of this place as it relates to convict leasing, and we know the whole history of that. Through your lens, why should this, what, what are you concerned about what will happen to the Chattahoochee Brick Company? Well, as I, as I said before, this process began in the spring when it was nominated by the Whittier Mills Village Association. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, we really were not aware that the city was negotiating to buy it. We are thrilled that that decision has been made. I think uh, December the 6th, just this past week, there was a council vote to purchase um, the site. 
uh, to preserve 75 acres of land there mm -hmm. and uh, really dedicated as a, a park and place of conscience. So we're, we're really thrilled with the result of that. And we look forward to working with the city with anybody else who wants to work with us to make that a reality. And should there be contextual markers and or some type of markers that obviously give a little history and context of this dislocation? You're in favor of that? Absolutely, without a doubt. And there needs to be archaeology done on this site as well to, to determine whether there are grave sites. Mm -hmm. There is uh, some significant evidence that there are burials. Burials took place here. Uh, and we need to know what the underground features still are there. Mm -hmm. The remnants of the brickworks could be an interesting thing to interpret and to, uh, you know, give some spark to the story. We need, you know, there's nothing like a place that helps you tell a story. Uh, yeah. And I think stories from the past can be told more uh, creatively and with greater emotional impact when you're in a place that it happened. I think that folks who are storytellers and some journalists who do very good jobs of that, they probably would agree with that. I want to talk about this list in general because you all have a, a lot. You all come up with your 10 every year uh, for these locations and dwellings that then they're on this list here. Um, how what is the actual impact when you make the list? I mean, do you do you all have some way of gauging the success of what this means for these for example, Good Shepherd Episcopal School in Glenn County, somewhere in the Atlanta area, says, I know nothing about that. We do have a way, and we evaluate them uh, constantly. And proud to say that uh, over 90% of the 165 or so sites that we have listed are still with us. Mm -hmm. uh, 10 or 12 of them have gone on to be restored and, and won preservation awards from the Georgia Trust. So uh, it's, it's in a very, very effective tool. Uh, we have lost some, most notably uh, Glen Ridge Hall mm -hmm. out in Sandy Springs was a place in peril. It's gone now, and there's a neighborhood there, modern neighborhood there. Uh, so we do evaluate it, make sure that it's still an effective program, and it really has been been so and been very satisfying. And we, we get to meet great people all across the state, the people who nominate these sites who later become our partners. So that's... Uh, I think one of the more, more positive things about the list is that it, it gets us to know people who are interested in preservation uh, that we might not have known ordinarily. And Mark, how do you all ensure, whether it's your donors or folks who are supporting you all, that there is equity and that there is a fair process when it comes to the criteria that you all are using? Because as you just mentioned, you know, when you make this list, it can be a good thing because it can help bring attention and possibly get funding to help save some of these places. But you and I both know that, you know, whether it's a list or, or any quality of life, whether it's for a person or quality of life or things that are around us, people want fairness. People want equity. How do you ensure, folks, that this process is fair? Well, that's a that's a value system at the Georgia Trust. And uh, one of that criteria is that that we have diversity geographically. We have diversity eth ethnically. We have diversity of building types. So we don't want all houses. We want industrial sites, uh, civic buildings, churches. So uh, we, we work hard at making sure. And, and I'll say this year, there were 10 buildings on the list. Eight of them have African-American history, mm -hmm. uh, strong connections. And that's a result really of enhanced uh, knowledge about our list and activism by African-American historical groups. So uh, I think we've been very successful in promoting the list and making sure that th those communities know that we're a resource to them. Mark, before I let you go, is there a site or a dwelling that you were so hoping and in the 14 years you've been with this organization that y'all were able to save and it, it just didn't. And it to this day is still sort of painful for you to even talk about. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mentioned it already. Glen Ridge Hall had absolutely no reason to be torn down. It was a building in perfect condition. We had worked with the owner for two years to pursue other alternatives, uh, hosted them at our both of our museum sites to talk about how they could lease the building and make income off of it. And um, behind our backs with no notification, they had it demolished. So yes, that was a heartbreaker, uh, not just for me personally, but for many people uh, with our organization and in the city. Hmm. 
So then with this list that's out, how optimistic are you that uh, they all will be able to be saved? Now, I want to be fair because I think Ansley Park is a little different. <laughs> I think you're going to get a whole lot of people with different opinions about that, Mark. Let's be really clear. But, you know, how optimistic are you about Because, again, you, you kind of make it sound like Ansley Park, they're bulldozers, like right there, just ready to come in and take everybody out. And that's not the case. But you well, have concerns. I, that, is, that is a reality, Rose. Um, I, I would say that I am optimistic, and we certainly are off with a good, great start with the city's uh, decision to purchase the site. That was unexpected. I did not know that was going on, and I'm thrilled with that result. So um, I think that, yes, we have a good chance to save most of these sites. We have strong partners, and that is the key thing is our partnership because uh, we have to have local people motivated uh, not just to save the site, Mm -hmm. but afterward to sustain it. And Mark, you let me know if you ever get wind of anything to deal with Busy Bee or, you know, one of my favorite eateries. I'll be I'll be there. I'm going to I'm going to call you when I see that be- bull- next bulldozer in Ansley Park. <laughs> I've never seen a bulldozer in Ansley Park. Oh, it's a good conversation. They, they deal with backhoes today, bros, anyway. Uh, so I'll give you a picture of the backhoe. <laughs> Mark McDonald, President and CEO of the Georgia Trust for Historic Preservation. By the way, folks, we'll have a link on our website to link to theirs. You can see, read more about all of these places which are on the list. Mark, thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. I got lots of emails from listeners. I'm just going to forward them to you. Great. Thank you for having me. Take care now. Bye. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. According to the Gifford Law Center, this is through their research, 39,000 Americans die from gun violence every year, an average of about 100 per day. Now, depending on whom you ask, the solutions vary as to combating gun violence. Now, here locally, the DeKalb County's District Attorney Office is shifting its approach a little bit to to combating gun violence. They're adding two new units to the office, And through enhancing technology and investigations, well, there's a lot more to this. Joining me now with the information is DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston. Good to see you. Welcome back. Thanks, Rose. It's always great to be back with you. A moment ago, I talked about depending on whom you ask, the solutions vary as to combating gun violence. You have been in law enforcement. You've been in this area for a while. There is no one-stop solution, you know, whether it's a here in Atlanta area where obviously that was a focus of the mayoral, you know, the recent mayoral contest. Every city seems to be grappling with this. Uh, what are fo- what are we getting wrong as a society, you think, uh, DA Boston, when we talk about combating gun violence? What are we focusing too much on and not enough on? Well, I, I think that we need to focus a lot more of our energies on how we can enact gun safety laws versus the conversation for so long that has been around the 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 right to bear arms the second amendment right mm-hmm. and i don't think any of us i know you know i firmly believe in the second amendment but i also know that we as with anything especially a firearm we we have to have safety measures in place that protect the public our children and our community. So you say start you say then it starts with gun laws because as you know so much of the violence is with illegal weapons uh you know, folks that own that should not have them. So you're saying if we strengthen the laws, you think that will have an immediate impact because a lot of folks as you know disagree with that. Well, I mean and and that's that's where I want to start the misnomer that that violence can stem from just those persons that shouldn't have a gun in their hand. Obviously, Mm -hmm. there are people every day that we prosecute in court that are charged with possessing a firearm where they legally are not able to. But we are also seeing violence where guns make it into the hands um, of young people or um, other persons that don't know how to use guns, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because of, you know, a lack of storage or leaving guns and vehicles where they can be stolen. Um, there are, and and I will tell you, we always talk about this in my office. And my deputy chief always says, so much of our crime now is because everybody got a gun. Meaning 
you could have two well-meaning people who are both validly and legally able to have a gun and a dispute happens. And unfortunately, uh, instead of a war of words, Mm -hmm. what we are a lot of times seeing is people start pulling out firearms. Mm -hmm. And this, these could be two people that each are allowed to have guns. They're not convicted felons. They lawfully have the right to have that weapon. But when tensions escalate, people have been drinking alcohol. We don't always see smart decisions. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, when once guns are pulled, violence happens, no matter who starts it or who ends it. Hmm. Let's talk about then your, as we called it, the new approach. And actually, you all had, had stated that way. Uh, take our listeners through these two. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're adding two new units dealing with this this issue, correct? Well, we're adding two new units to our office to make us, I think, uh, do more to serve the community and to increase public safety. Mm-hmm. Um, one is our digital forensics unit, which we really are just expanding. Um, which is separate and aside from guns, but obviously will play a big role in all the work we do. And our digital forensics unit is just a reality that um, the world has changed. And everybody in America is walking around with a small computer on them. Um, It's called their phones, Mm -hmm. their smartphones. Uh, And these phones collect all kinds of data, whether it's pictures, text messages, Uh, geolocations that we have found are extremely helpful in the investigation and prosecution of crimes everywhere. Um, So I am really grateful that the CEO and our board of commissioners here in DeKalb understand um, that as the world evolves, we have to evolve in the way we investigate and prosecute cases. So a listener says, okay, well, let me stop you there, DA DA Boston, for a second. Are you saying that you're going to use technology in terms of accessing folks phones when you're trying to investigate a a crime using that and you know because then folks start talking about you know privacy and all that stuff so because remember now the fbi had a hard time trying to get apple permission to unlock a cell phone for a a, i believe it was a a um a mass shooter so what, what are you talking about here we are talking about legal access. I certainly don't want <laughs> okay. anyone to think that we that Big Brother is watching in an illegal way. Um, but we, like any other piece of evidence, we have to get search warrants. We have to get um, uh, court orders to be able to get this information. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do it. We've been doing it all the time. Um, but now we want to make sure that um, because. Every single person has a phone. You can only imagine in every single criminal case. Um, It can be crucial and critical information, not only to and to prosecute, um, but to to locate. I mean, a prime example, we all know that we had two DeKalb County officers that were sheriff's Mm -hmm. officers that were shot Mm -hmm. um, last week when they were executing a warrant. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we do that we did. Um, and I can talk about this because, uh, you know, it's um, the, the suspect is now um, deceased. But one of the things we did was we we got immediately got an, an, an order from the judge to ping his cell phone um, mm-hmm. or the last known cell phone. So we might be able to locate a suspect that was armed and dangerous and had already shot two police officers and protecting the public. So this is information that we are already doing. Uh, to locate suspects, um, and to investigate crime. Um, And so we recognize that we need more services to do that. And I'm excited that we're expanding our digital forensics unit to help. So the digital forensic unit, but then there's also another uh, unit here, which is more of a a collaboration uh, of dealing with gun violence. Yes. um, I'm really excited to roll out our firearm violence prevention unit. Mm Um, And this really, to me, is the future of how we need to approach gun violence. Um, So part of the unit absolutely is going to be the prosecution um, of serious firearm crimes and the investigation. We know, I mean, prime example, just in the last couple of weeks, there's been reporting out of my uh, sister jurisdiction in Douglas County mm-hmm. um, about allegedly a 13 year old that was creating ghost guns and selling them. And as a result, his, his sister was, was um, shot. Yeah. Well, shot she was killed in the, in the crossfire and, mm-hmm. and died, right. It was killed. 
Um, but ghost guns is just one of those real specialty areas um, that we need to have units that are dedicated to looking at that. And I will tell you, Douglas County didn't realize they had an issue with ghost guns until they happened upon this crime. But that's just one of the things that this type of unit can address. You will but, have... But what I, I'm sorry, because I just want folks to understand, because in this unit, and, I, and you can talk more about it, you're going to have an attorney, an investigator, a victim advocate, and a social worker. Yes. So I wanted to shift about the community aspect of this, because, you know, it's really important, um, especially for me and how I imagine prosecution. It's bigger than just prosecuting people and sending them to jail. It's about prevention of crime. And the way we do that is through education and outreach. So we want to create spaces where we can talk to legal gun owners in our community about gun storage and gun safety, right? We wanna to talk to our parents in the community that if you have a gun in your home to protect your family, we want you to have gun safes that keep those firearms out of the hands of your children or your children's friends mm -hmm. that are in your home. Um, we want to talk to gun owners about trigger trigger locks and how you can arm your weapons again so that if they did get in the hands of an unauthorized person, they would be unable to utilize that gun. And our social workers are going to deal with what we're seeing more than ever is that um, in our office, our victim advocates primarily deal with folks where someone is charged. But what we know is there are a lot of unsolved, uncleared shootings mm -hmm. in our community. And so we want social workers to go out in the community and interface with that part of the community that perhaps doesn't have that outlet in the criminal justice system, but are suffering all the same. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this, because as you know, because you have a budget that you have to every year, and, and you mentioned CEO Thurman, and I know CEO Thurman, and I know whenever he can give any department a little extra money, they always love to shout, shout him out. But is this something that you all can sustain every year? Because you will need that. You will need, How much money is all this going to cost you, DA Boston? Well, about $1.5 million extra. Is, is what we've gotten for mm -hmm. funding um, that takes us through the next two years. And, and here's where I'm at. I appreciate the support of our CEO, Michael Thurman. And I know he's gonna be looking for me to come up with data and solution and results. You know and me we well, <laughs> because that's my next question. Let's talk, let's talk about then how do you assess, gauge the effectiveness of this? Because again, it goes back to depending on whom you ask, the solutions vary. We know it takes more than one. So if this is a solutions oriented approach, how do you gauge that? Well, you're asking all the right questions as usual, Rose, and, and we are prepared and ready. In fact, um, I'm really thrilled that um, our office has um, a data analyst on board that we actually hired over the pandemic, whose sole job is um, really to help us with data across all of our units, because we want to be evidence based and evidence driven. And the only way we can do that is if we are looking at um, the right metrics. And so we actually had a meeting, internal meeting yesterday, to discuss what metrics mm -hmm. these new units need to be collecting in order for us to determine if we are, in fact, being successful in the goals that we set out in the ways that we have organized these units and the resources we placed into them. And so I've got two years to collect that information. And I know that CEO Thurman is going to be asking me for a full data report to outlay what results we've been able to accomplish. Something else I want to get to before we let you go, because I asked Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, she talked about this, the backlog in her office. Now, again, she inherited a lot of cases, obviously, from the, her predecessor. But you all as well, because we've been in a pandemic, question fair question first, are you experiencing a backlog? And if so... About how many cases? Because D.A. Willis, it was up in the thousands, and I do mean high thousands. Right. We, we're we in a similar situation. Now, luckily, um, you know, I was already in office. So once the pandemic hit, I could hit the ground running um, at the not knowing how long we were going to be in the pandemic. But we knew once we were shut down for at least the first couple of weeks that this was um, going to be 
catastrophic for the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And what we're experiencing, not just in Atlanta or Georgia, but across the nation are courts um, that were shut down for a long period of time. So here's where we're at. Um, We are working very hard um, to get um, cases back into the criminal justice system. We're not going to try our way out of backlog. You cannot try away this problem. How many cases do you um, project? We know that we are in the thousands, mid, (laughs) mid to high thousands of cases that have are in the in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means they're, they're in various stages from people that have been arrested, that nothing has happened because cases that were pending two years ago and about to go to so trial. So they haven't even been arraigned? They haven't gone to trial. Some of these folks haven't, are you saying some of these folks haven't even been arraigned, but they're just maybe possibly sitting behind incarcerated? No, any, but jail cases are always the priority. So okay. we've been able to continue doing first appearances all through the pandemic. Um, arraignments could only happen once we could indict or accuse cases. So mm-hmm. remember, we didn't have grand jury for over a year. Yeah. So yes, there were people that um, could not get arraigned because they actually hadn't been formally charged. Luckily, the legislature did give us some reprieve by allowing it, by changing the law temporarily to not force us to have to use grand jury that we could directly accuse cases. So there have been some measures put in place to help us along the way. Um, but the backlog is real. Mm-hmm. I anticipate it will take us at this point upwards of three years to get back to a normal pace and to catch up. Wow. How, when you hear that, when listeners hear that, I can imagine what's going through their mind, but as a district attorney and everything you just talked about, (laughs) I feel silly asking this, but how, how do you cope with that? How do you grapple with that, that three years to catch up? It's hard. And that's why I say we're not going to try our way out of this pandemic. And it, it requires um, district attorney's offices and courts to think about strategies. And I will tell you that we created a COVID backlog policy here in my office because I recognized that we're going to have to figure out and prioritize which cases. Do you have enough staff? With. Are you? No, we don't. We don't have enough staff. Um, and I have, I have once again made a request um, of my board of commissioners, but we've also made a request. Governor Kemp has set aside $114 million okay. for the court system, and I've made a request on that as well. DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. We'll bring you back. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And as always, if you missed today's show, you can find the entire program online because I tell you every day it's at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. We have a podcast. It's free. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.